Hello again, folks. I am truly glad you're here. I know it's been two weeks, but pull up that chair. Let me feed those ears. It's still brilliant. It's still stupid. Although maybe not as stupid today. It's SMPH, presented by Spotify for Podcasters. Amy Jo Cook back with you. I apologize for disappearing off the face of the earth for a minute. I took a break. And I have a responsibility to tell you that this week's show is going to have a different energy than what you're accustomed to. This week is going to have a different feel. And a lot of that has to do with the way the last two weeks have gone. And things that have happened in my world, things that have happened in the world, things I've had to learn about myself and about my perspectives and perceptions on life. So this one might get a little heavy for some of you. But know that I am truly grateful you're here. I'm grateful for the those of you who do listen. Thank you. I wouldn't be able to do this without you. I also wouldn't be able to do this without the help of Spotify for Podcasters. Spotify for Podcasters is a great service that gives you all the tools you need to start your own podcast. From audio recording and editing tools to backing vocal or backing music interstitials all of the things you need to create your podcast but also gives you the ability to distribute on multiple platforms and gives you the tools you need to monetize your podcast and that now includes integrating patreon support so if you're familiar with patreon and you're familiar with monetizing your creative work that way now you can add that to spotify for podcasters so with that, you get everything that I've told you about, plus even more ways to monetize and distribute your show. Visit podcasters.spotify.com today and start your own podcast. Yes, I've been gone for two weeks. I needed a break. Things were going on and things in the world had kind of gotten me into a place where, honest, I was in a bad headspace. I can't lie to you. I've had a lot weighing on my mind these last couple weeks. Like how badly I want to choke the neighbor's rooster. That's not a joke. My neighbors have roosters, and I swear to God, if that thing doesn't stop crowing at 4.45 in the fucking morning, I'm about to go make myself dinner with that fucker. Anyway. Yeah, I'm kidding, of course. You you all know I like animals, but this one's freaking annoying. I'm trying to record. It's one in the afternoon when I start putting this together so I can have it out by 7 Eastern, 
And I want to make sure I have enough time today to actually go over all the stuff that I want to go over. Because again, I've had a lot on my mind. I've had a lot weighing on me heavily. But if you hear a rooster crowing because my office isn't soundproof, I'm sorry. God fucking damn it. I'm going to go. Ooh, I wish I had a BB gun. Two weeks ago, I had started to do an episode. And in that episode, I kicked it off by talking about an incident that had happened in Marion, Kansas. Where the Marion County Sheriff's Office, in cooperation with a local judge, had gotten together a search warrant to raid the newspaper, claiming that the newspaper had stolen private information on a member of the town. Not only was the information disclosed about this individual publicly available, But the newspaper had also been critical of that police department in the past. And from the outset, it was clear to just about everybody that this was a police department and a court retaliating against a newspaper. And that is one of the most egregious violations of anybody's constitutionally protected rights. It has since been resolved. And part of me wanted to include that here. Part of me wanted to include that original rant because I got I got fighting mad about it. Like, I was ready to gas up the car and drive to Kansas and punch some brass in the dick. And when I finished that segment, I was so boiling hot mad. It wrecked my energy for the rest of the day. It wrecked my energy for the day after. Like, I tried to put off the show for a day, and I was going to do it the next day after I had some time to cool off. And I was still furious. But I think that was just kind of the, the catalyst to things that were already going on in my world that just gave me an easy excuse to just be like, fuck everything. And I realized at that point, I was going to head down a path that wasn't going to be productive. I was going to head down to, I was about to head down a path of engaging in old behaviors and attitudes that I once possessed that I, I definitely did not like about myself. And having just turned 39 on Sunday, I realized these are things that, that frankly, I just can't do or be. These are parts of myself that I just flat out did not like. And I hated 
that circumstances had gotten me to feeling that way again. To feeling like him. And some of you who listen to this program know exactly what I mean when I say I felt like him again. That bitter, miserable misanthrope that I thought I had left behind. Apparently, I didn't leave him as far behind as I would have hoped. And I realized that I had to separate from the intensity of what I was feeling. Because I realized what I was feeling, and by extension the persona of him, was purely a defensive measure. Because I, in that moment, I felt threatened. As someone who at one point in her life wanted to become a journalist, as someone who in her life has always bristled against authority, but has always cherished the rights granted to us by the Constitution because they are mission-critical protections that keep, or ostensibly are supposed to keep, our country from devolving into a totalitarian regime. In many ways, they failed to do that, usually due to the active efforts of people who want everything, and apparently at some point in their childhood were so stunned that they never learned to share. And when I felt that angerness, or that anger, and that bitterness start to well up inside of me, I had to walk away. Because I started to realize what I was feeling probably had a lot less to do with that newspaper being raided than I was willing to admit. There was a point where I came to the realization that what I was feeling really had nothing at all to do with that incident. And I just used that incident as a convenient lens through which to spill out a, a, a metric fuck ton of ill feelings and bad attitudes that I felt boiling under the surface for quite a while. To smarten you up, the budget at my day job had been slashed dramatically. By extension, my pay had been slashed dramatically. There was the struggle of whether or not I was going to be able to pay my bills. Some of you know I've been doing voice work since 2018. 
a lot of that disappeared when the world went sideways three years ago. Not all of it has come back. It's been inconsistent at best. And as the economy continues to deteriorate, a lot of those jobs haven't come back, and it's been wildly inconsistent since. And when you have to commit your efforts to constantly auditioning, constantly recording and submitting bids for jobs and getting rejected quite a lot, and I think that's another thing that people don't understand, and it's one of those one of those aspects, one of those facets you just have to get used to if you're in a performance-based field. I hear a lot of people out applying for day jobs and they're like, why am I not getting so many interviews? Why is this start you start to take it personal? And it's kind of the same thing with voice work. Except you have to multiply the frequency with which you're rejected. Even if the quality of your work is above average. So I was dealing with money struggles. I still am. Thankfully, there's been some good news. The day job, it turns out it was just a, a mismanagement of funds for a quarter. Things are working themselves back out. And then in a couple of weeks, it's going to get back to where it ought to be. It wasn't just that. It wasn't just my frustration with social media. What a horrible grease fire that's been in and of itself and the damage that it's done to society. That might feel like a scapegoat sometimes. But I think it also had to do with the fact that, as I mentioned, I just turned 39 on Sunday. And... I think we've all had that point in our lives, well, not all of us, but, but most of us have had that point in our lives where we feel like, we feel like we're a failure at, as defined by the standards of the world around us. And... It's a it's a never-ending internal conflict between what society defines as the necessary milestones of development and, and, and when you should be hitting those milestones in your life and what we think we should be and the, the parameters of success that we define for ourselves. And I think at that point, approaching 39, still struggling to make ends meet, still struggling to find a way to make voice acting my only job, still finding a way to make this generate enough of an audience and enough of an income to be my only job, I felt like a failure. I still feel like a failure. I'm it's one of, those, one of those things, and I'm sure enough of you out there have had this attitude where you feel like you feel like you're not doing enough because you're not meeting that milestone as it's defined externally and the older you get the more pressure you begin to feel in relation to those external milestones that seem to always be defined by someone else that you can never really define by yourself. 
And full disclosure, I let that get to me. I let it get to me bad. I let it get to me to a point where I was mad at myself. And I still kind of am. You see people, and social media again has made this worse because we see people around us and we see, we see them present only the idealized version of themselves and we create this notion in our own head, kind of makes us spin our own wheels in a way, that because we're not, I hate this damn cliche, living our best life as someone else defines it, we start to internalize that that perceived failure more and more and more intensely the older we get. And I think that was a lot of what I was feeling. That was a hell of a lot of what I was feeling. And it doesn't matter what field you're in. You could be a comedian. Still out touring a specific region, and you see people doing big theaters, some of them even doing arenas, and you're like, why can't I get to that level? Well, shit, almost nobody gets to that level. And if you can't accept that almost nobody gets to that level, you're just going to drive yourself fucking insane. And I fell victim to that, what I can only really describe as an attitude trap. And I realized, as much as the world wants to define what success ought to be, and in a society like ours, it usually just means money and stuff. It's always money and stuff, money and stuff. I come from a family where several forks of the family are hoarders. There's never not stuff. There's too much stuff. I fucking hate it. Spent a lot of my life buried in stuff. Stuff of no value. And you'll forgive me if I kind of go silent for a stretch here as I try to put these words together and try to articulate this internal feeling without sort of lashing out or getting a, a degree of intense that, that, that again... I don't want to associate with. But when you get so entrenched in that conflict, you kind of start to question your worth as a person. You start to question your worth to society 
and then you realize, well, hell, if you if you spend all your time worrying about that, you're going to drive yourself nuts, and then you start to develop this feeling that you're never going to be able to catch up to what society defines as successful. You're never going to be able to meet that standard, and you end up just chasing something that you can never obtain. Because that goalpost is always going to move if somebody else is the one who decides where it stands. And so I just had to hit the brakes. I had to hit the brakes and reevaluate what I defined as success. And remember that it was up to me to define success. And for me, it's not always about money and stuff. It's about having sound perspective. It's about having a perception of the world that, I don't know, ideally isn't comprised almost entirely of cynicism. And Lord knows, Lord knows I'm overstocked on cynicism. I could have a liquidation stale on that shit. Like I'm Bed Bath & Beyond going the fuck out of business. Get rid of all of it and there, there'd still be more. The factory overproduced, it's gotta go. Oh shit, here comes more. Cynicism just rolling by on a conveyor belt. Like, like that episode of I Love Lucy. Where she's working at, what was it, the chocolate factory? And I realized it's not the world's place to define what success is for me. Success for me was figuring out how to be more humble. Because any of you who knew me in my 20s know I was a pompous, arrogant turd. Success for me is growing in who I am now. And being more confident and being more assertive in who I've become over the last five years. When I finally made the decision to face... the very essence of who I am and that I couldn't reconcile that with the persona that I felt like the world forced me to adopt and craft in order just to survive. For me, I realize now that success is being associated with a reputation for quality. If you know me personally, you know I am obsessed with doing quality work. 
And it bugs the shit out of me when I can't do anything that I don't feel is my absolute best effort. One friend learned that this weekend. The first time I ever did makeup for somebody else. I mean, over the last five years, I've learned to do my makeup fairly well. But I've never worked on someone else's face. And I was almost, almost had a panic attack. Because I was afraid she was going to see it and it wasn't going to meet her approval. And I sit here two days later. And I'm glad I was wrong. It was the night of my birthday. We were dressing up and just having fun. Just being glamorous bitches. Adorable weirdos. She used the term beautiful disasters. I preferred the term adorable weirdos. But while I'm sitting there doing her makeup and things aren't going, you know, as perfectly smooth as they would with my face, because I know the contours of my face, I can do my makeup even every day for work, 20, 25 minutes, smack that stuff out. And it's a complex process. But I'm sitting here at her house spinning my damn wheels to the point of almost being in a panic because I'm afraid it's not going to be good enough. Anyone who's worked with me in a kitchen knows. Sometimes I will feel like I'm sinking in the weeds. Two years ago I was at work and... I told my boss at the time, I told my chef, I was like, I don't, I don't feel like I can keep up. I'm not keeping up. I'm not keeping up. He's like, the fuck are you talking about not keeping up? You're cranking out eight minute perfect tickets. You're crushing it. Like, what the, what, what are you so anxious about? I feel like if I'm not doing my absolute best, then I'm not doing enough. And it's not going to be enough. And maybe that comes from growing up in a family where the goalpost was always moving. And even if you were doing your absolute best to the point of burning yourself out and you couldn't get an approval from an individual or individuals who were never going to give you that approval, you... you What I'm trying to say is, as I got older, I mostly realized that if you let yourself be defined and be dictated by that ever-moving goalpost, nothing's ever going to be enough. And you're never going to feel like enough, and you're going to internalize that. And you're going to begin to feel like an absolute piece of shit. And then guess what? You're going to steer yourself into being an absolute piece of shit. Another thing of which I have been guilty from time to time. If you've known me at all in my adult life, you've known times where I was an absolute piece of shit. <laughs> and, whew. I'm a little horse. 
I did a lot of hollering this weekend. It was my birthday. What? For the last three years, I, I, I've dealt with my own shit. I'll spare you the details. But okay, finally, one weekend, I get to make it about me. And... Doing my friend's makeup on Sunday night made me come to the realization that, uh, you know, maybe I don't have to spend my time defining myself by others' definition of success, and maybe we're all guilty of spending too much time Defining ourselves by other people's parameters for success. Because as the pieces started to come together, after after she kind of helped me unwind and kind of break that tension a little bit, I got back to doing what I know. I got back to finishing the look. And by the end, I realized... When I just stuck to what I knew, the result was great. She was thrilled with it. She felt like a completely different person because what I had done and the look that I had put together, she felt like she could get lost in. Because what she saw looking back at her was a different person completely. And it was kind of an epiphany in a way. When I decided what was good, when I decided to trust my instincts instead of constantly trying to reconcile them with what I thought other people's expectations were, the pressure was gone. And the result wound up becoming exactly what I'd hoped it would be, better than I'd hoped it would be. And it's a lesson you'd think I'd know now by the age of 39, but (laughs) shit, what have I said? Humans don't learn from their mistakes. Well, I'm guilty too. But when I stopped listening to that internal fight in my head, just went with what I knew... Like everything else I do, it became the quality that I expected of myself. And what I saw ultimately was a good piece of work. I was proud of it. When I took a hiatus from this back in uh, the holidays, it was because I felt like I was too occupied with what others defined as success. And over the last several weeks, when the show came back, I decided to do it my way. And I liked the format. And the numbers indicated that you liked the format. Still can't get any of you bastards to email me. Feed my ears at Outlook.com. Come on, have an opinion. Give me some shit. Come on, make me earn it.
I don't know. This is a this is a lot for you to have to digest like right off the rip. And maybe I don't necessarily owe you this explanation, but I feel like I do. I wanted to to bring the steak today. Any of you who know anything about my affinity for wrestling know that I prefer to listen to some of the more old guard of voices in wrestling. And one of the concepts in wrestling, or that wrestling does a very good job of reducing reducing down, is the concept of sizzle and steak. Sizzle is the energy and the hype and the 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 style the presentation but the steak is the substance and you can have the best sizzle in the world but remember a skillet'll still sizzle if it's hot and you just put some water in it but once that water evaporates and the sizzle's gone there's no steak there's no substance But even if you have no sizzle, and you've got a good steak, at least you've got the steak. And so, yes, today, and this, this whole conversation I'm having with you and have for the last 30 minutes, has been about that roller coaster in my own brain. And what I perceive as the stakes of dealing in steak. So we're going to Continue to deal in a fat one today. There's still no shortage of heavy stuff I want to talk about today. Not all of it great. But... We'll get through it. There's plenty of good show left. I've been away for two weeks. A lot of stuff's happened. There's a lot of stuff that I've had on the back burner for two weeks. We're going to cover that too. But I wanted to thank you for your patience while I worked this stuff out for myself. And I'm still going to talk about the aggravation I feel. In what's going on. And I'm still going to deal with some of the topics I wanted to talk about the last couple weeks. While I walked away to figure myself out.
In fact, when we come back from the break, since I've already drastically overrun this segment by 15 good minutes, I'm going to bring you a, a segment that I wanted to talk about two weeks ago that I almost released last week, but I'm kind of glad I didn't because it wasn't I wasn't ready. But when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about how Twitter slash X and its derivatives have kind of made not only what I've talked about so far worse, but about how something else I want to address today has become worse because of what Twitter and its derivatives have done. So again, we're dealing a lot in stake today. If you saw my tease for today's show, you know. I said the lab's been busy. I've been cooking. And today, it's going to be a lot of steak. But thank you for being here. Stay with me. There's a shit ton of show left to come. It's SMPH. Still brilliant. Still stupid. Presented by Spotify for Podcasters. S-M-P-H Still Brilliant Still Stupid Presented by Spotify for Podcasters Amy Jo Cook back with you Serving up all that delicious steak You might not be around for the sizzle But it's there I'll bring it in my own way Sometimes we gotta dry age it a little This week, we had to dry-age the steak for a couple of weeks. But trust me when I tell you, the flavor is still there. And like every week, that flavor is brought to you by Spotify for Podcasters. Spotify for Podcasters is a service that gives you everything you need to start, distribute, and monetize your own podcast. Visit podcasters.spotify.com Sign up. Try it out. Play around with the tools you've got there. If you have tools you already like working with, build your audio there like I do. Upload it to the site, and then from there, you can distribute across a multitude of platforms. I mean, hell, just with our show, you can hear us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify itself, iHeartRadio. It's all there. You can be there too. Go visit podcasters.spotify today. Podcasters.spotify.com today. Can you tell I do this without copy? (laughs) Visit podcasters.spotify.com today. Give it a go. 
start your own podcast. The platform's there. It's waiting for you. Go. Go do it. When we're done here, go do it. Stick around. There's, again, a lot. But visit podcasters.spotify.com and get all the tools you need to start your own podcast today. You know, I should probably write ad... <laughs> I should probably write ad copy when I do ads. It's kind of sad, really, when I do them for here. You know, it's it's one of those that I got used to... When you get used to doing an ad so many times, you know where the bullet points are to hit. And you just do them without thinking about it. Uh, to the point where you just you just know them verbatim. I mean, any of you who know... um, In a past life, when I did my first podcast... um, We were sponsored by Cousin Vinny's briefly. I can still do that ad read cold in my head. The Tim Simon Show presented on WMMM Net Radio is presented by Cousin Vinny's Pizza, home of the original Big Ten. That's a large one-topping pizza, eight giant breadsticks, and two 22-ounce Pepsi fountain drinks, all for the low, low price of $10.99. Delivery charge may apply. Contact your local Cousin Vinny's for more. Cousin Vinny's Pizza, who's your favorite cousin? Oh, my God. Whew. Okay, that was like an out-of-body... That was an out-of-body experience there for a second, but... I mean, even as you can see, like, you do this long enough and you don't need the copy, <laughs> but sometimes you can still screw up. Imagine if I was doing this live, how fucked that would be. Um, whew. All right. <laughs> I, I said less stupid today. I, I didn't say there'd be no stupid. There, there's a spring. <laughs> there's a sprinkle. You're welcome. You're welcome. There's, there's your, there's your salt and pepper. There's your flavor. God damn it. I'm, I'm horrible sometimes. <laughs> but yes. There, yes, there's your little bit of stupid. I'm going to go back and listen to this before I post it. Cause I always do, I always do it kind of linear and then I do my post and clean things up and then upload it for you, for all of you to consume. It's one of the reasons I start my recording day, my work day, at one in the afternoon, so that I can have everything together and up and out to you by 7 Eastern. But God, I'm going to go back and listen to that one. I'm probably going to piss myself a little laughing at that ad read, because it's been so long. Like, I'm kind of afraid. I'm kind of afraid to go back and listen to him. Um... That wasn't a recording, by the way. That's just, again, voice actor. That's me just doing it cold. Like, it's fucking muscle memory at this point. But, um, yeah, no, back... <laughs> Shit. Back on the point. Again, podcaster. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Visit podcasters.spotify.com. For all the tools you need to start your own podcast. But yes, please do please do it after you're done listening to the program today. Um I had to have that little therapy session for myself at the beginning of the show because again, it's been damn it. I, I broke myself, son of a bitch. <laughs> it's been two weeks. Uh 
of really just figuring stuff out about myself and reconciling what I define with as success versus what the world defines as success and what social media has made an increasingly narrowing definition of success and how social media is a pile of shit. And at this point anymore, most of you know, I pretty much just spout an opinion, advertise the show, maybe post some photos. And that's about it. I don't, I don't fuck with it otherwise. What I've got here for you, this is actually what I'm about to play for you is an ex is is the topic I wanted to discuss a couple of weeks ago about how social media has in a very significant way. damaged the way we talk about things in our culture and has sort of choked off in many respects the the discourse that we used to be able to have and the disagreements the civil disagreements that we used to be able to have even with people who didn't necessarily agree with us on everything and this is going to play into what we talk about after that because, of course, and yes, I will still eventually get to the Shopper's Guide segment, but that's kind of a low priority today. But it's also going to pertain to what I'm going to talk about after that. As I talk about three individuals. Three individuals who we sadly lost in the last seven days. And with one of them, part of what I'm you're about to hear me gripe about came into play in the most classless and disgusting way imaginable. But that's the next segment. So here was what I had recorded. This was originally supposed to appear on the program two weeks ago, but it didn't, because again, I had to go figure out some e-shit, but this is what I had to say last week about how I felt Twitter X, why the fuck did that idiot change the name, has damaged our society in a very real way, and it will tie into how that damage has affected the way we don't let things breathe anymore. So I'm going to take a break, put this in. Please listen. This is, again, an excerpt from last week's show that I abandoned because I decided it was more important to take a break. And now we will continue on with what I originally planned to talk about last week on the program. I was so fired up and so angry... I didn't even record the rest of it. I did. I threw it out. I got like part of the way through it and I was just, I just could feel so much righteous indignation coursing through everything that it just, it ruined the whole thing for me. But that's okay. We're going to start over. We're going to, we're going to control Z, all of that shit. 
And we're going to continue forward with the program as I had planned to do last week. Again, if you have any thoughts, email the show, feedmyears at outlook.com. Reach us at the SMPH inbox, 937-226-9767. But now that that's out of the way, let's continue on with the other points that I wanted to address last week. One of which I've had a week to stew on. And it's kind of become even more... present, more visible, more perceptible to me just in that time. Now, if you follow us on Facebook or you follow me on Instagram at AJC, yep, that's me. You know, every week I leave a tease of what the show is going to feature, the main four segments of the program. And I'm sure some of you are probably scratching your heads or saying, ah, shit, here comes the hyperbole. When I said things like Twitter and its derivatives were destroying discourse in our society. And I've had a little more time to think about that and better arrange my thoughts on exactly what it is I'm trying to say. The reason that I've observed that discourse has deteriorated into what I can only describe as just poo-flinging in today's society has a lot to do with the format that Twitter established 15 years ago. What they called at the time the microblog. A place where people could publicly post their thoughts in a space no longer than you got for an SMS message. In fact, 25 fewer characters than you got in an SMS message. It was quick, it was instant, things could be shared and spread around like wildfire. This was all by design. The biggest problem with this, and the behavior that it normalized, stems in no, is caused in no small part by the fact that having such a short, short character limit caused a lot of topics and a lot of points to be reduced to a hashtag or an orphan slogan where all the context and all the subtext was stripped out because you can't really do anything with nuance in 140 characters. A a good example pre-Twitter would be the concept of the customer is always right. We've heard that phrase beaten to death over the last several decades. The customer's always right. The customer's always right. The customer's always right. Which some people take as license to behave like jackasses. Or to behave like entitled, spoiled children. To behave like Karens. And a Karen is another term that originally had a very distinct meaning until Twitter removed all of its context and subtext, and it just became a blanket expression for anyone expressing indignation. Not an undeserved sense of entitlement, like it was originally intended. The original expression, the customer is always right, had a second part. But over the decades, we got lazy and cut that out. 
And when we cut out that context, the customer is always right in matters of taste. People began to do what humans often do. They began to project their own subtext into what the customer is always right meant. There are a lot of people today who are completely oblivious to the fact that 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 expression even had a second half. It was originally the customer is always right in matters of taste. So, if you're a furniture salesperson and a customer comes in and buys a hideous-ass olive green living room set and they want to put it against their carrot orange living room decor, think 1974, you... you Older listeners, you fucking know. Anyone who watched that 70s show, you saw it. That was a a great example. The customer is always right in matters of taste. Even if you think it looks like shit, if it's what the customer wants, you get it for them. It never meant the customer was free to be a jackass, the customer was free to treat the staff like shit. That's never what it meant. But over time, we as a species got lazy as a culture, got lazy, lopped off the second half of that and started to project a wholly separate subtext on it based on our ego. And this is a problem that is magnified by Twitter and anything else that replicates that format. One of the prime examples goes back to 2013. This is one of the first instances where it where it really, truly became a problem in a vehicle for division. When Trayvon Martin was shot and killed in Florida, and people of a certain persuasion considered him disposable, there was an expression that you all know, and some of you it's going to piss off, and that's Black Lives Matter. But what you forget, because the internet is designed so that you forget it, is that the original expression was Black Lives Matter, comma, too. As in Black Lives Matter also. Because at the time, we were beginning to see a rather severe rash of black folks being disproportionately treated by cops with excessive force. And this is something that had been going on for decades, and we were just generally oblivious to it. The media didn't have anything to gain by exposing this phenomenon, even though it did happen. But you can't put a punctuation in a hashtag. It breaks the hashtag. And when you have a 140 character limit, you can't add the context of Black Lives Matter also, which was the original intent of the message, to point out we are not disposable. We deserve the same dignity that you enjoy. But because Twitter didn't allow for enough space for that context or that subtext to be expressed, and discussed, it just got shortened to Black Lives Matter. 
and a certain segment of the population decided to be intellectually and academically lazy, as we often are, and instead of going and figuring out the context and the subtext, they reacted by projecting their own ego and projecting their own subtext into Black Lives Matter and whipped themselves into a frenzy to think and convince themselves genuinely that Black Lives Matter meant white lives don't. Again, this particular group of racist fucks instead of learning the context or subtext, just decided to be lazy and inject their own ego into it, and they projected their own subtext onto it. And thus, we had another false dichotomy, but one of the first that really, truly, in the age of Twitter, stuck out like a sore thumb. Now, granted, we're at a point where X no longer has that same degree of character limit. But the damage has been done. Think about it. 2013 was five years into Twitter. By that point, Twitter had successfully marketed itself to a point where celebrities were on it. Media personalities were on it. Everybody was on it, except me. Fuck that. I, I, hate, I hated it from day one. Any of you who know me, you know I have shat on that concept from the beginning, for this reason. And because that behavior was normalized, because that behavior was conditioned to just make it short instead of make it concise, and those aren't quite synonyms, by the way, we also developed a rebound effect of people projecting their own beliefs and own perceptions onto things on Twitter that it had their context and subtext and nuance stripped away by the character limit, even today. The character limit is gone, but because we were all, even by that point, so thoroughly conditioned to ignore the context and subtext that were originally there, since Twitter is designed to show you what it wants to show you and makes it as difficult as possible for you to see things in chronological order, a tactic Facebook later copied, which again, straight out of the Orwell playbook, go read 1984, I'm not fucking with you when I say these things. Even to this day, everything has become a dichotomy because that nuance was stripped out and that behavior of stripping nuance and context and subtext out of complex discussions was normalized by Twitter. And now we have Parler over on the right, which operates the exact same way, except all of the conservatives have self-segregated and it's become more extreme. Or Threads on the left, which has segregated itself and become more extreme. If you think this wasn't by design, you are naive as shit. And I've got a bridge in Middle Earth I'd like to sell you. All it's going to cost you is one ring. Whether or not it rules them all, I don't give a shit, but you can have this bridge in Middle Earth because you're a gullible motherfucker. 
I found that because that behavior was normalized on Twitter, it then spilled over into Facebook, into Instagram, into Discuss, into Quora, into Reddit, any place that has a discussion forum. Because it's been going for 15 years now, which is by de how we define a rough generation, our entire public at large now, when they're online, has an ugly, ugly tendency to want to reduce everything to a dichotomy, label other anyone they fucking can, and attack anyone and everyone that doesn't validate what ego, what their ego created, the subtext that their ego created and projected onto a thing that we've stripped all the nuance out of. Now, isn't it odd that the customer is always right concept happened decades before Twitter? But now with the advent of Twitter and its derivatives, everything has its, its meaning taken out. Look at that uh, particular nasty thing we dealt with for the last three years. Suddenly, anyone who had misgivings about this particular vaccine being rushed to market, being experimental... And the manufacturers of same being absolved from any and all liability. And then people being told they weren't allowed to participate in society if they didn't get it. Were labeled anti-vax. Even if they generally acknowledge the efficacy of vaccines. But had misgivings about the specifics of this particular one. They were automatically anti-vax. Are you fucking kidding me? I acknowledge the general efficacy of vaccines, but there was so much political aggression tied to that one that I said, ah, tap the brakes. Why are we copying China's template on this? Oh, well, you're an anti-vaxxer. No. Go look at the last 20 years of my adult life. Never been an anti-vaxxer. But I was called one because I didn't validate the dichotomy. You must be 100% in favor of COVID regulations or you must 100% be a conservative conspiracy theorist. No. I don't trust the political aggression attached to this and none of you will even talk about it. John Stewart, who is considered a champion of the left, said, uh, some of this sounds kind of fishy, guys. And he got excoriated by the left. What does that tell you about how bad discourse has gotten in our culture as a whole? That, one, everything is reduced to it must be this or it must be that. But that so many of us are so quick to label someone an other simply for not validating every granular detail of what we think or feel. You know what's really funny? When these discussions happen online, 
they reduce to bickering almost instantly. Because it's easy to attack a picture or an avatar next to a name. Because in your brain, that's not a real person. But I have found, both liberal and conservative, I have way, way more productive discussions. And I've touched on this before. I know I have. I have far more productive discussions with either end of the political spectrum when we're talking in person, when we can read each other's body languages and be heard and see the other person as a person, because then you know how you remember how to do the social dance of discourse. You remember the steps. You can listen and hear the context and hear the subtext and hear the tone and hear the feeling behind what a person is saying. And then it becomes a lot more real. At that point, you're not attacking an avatar. If you're an absolute cockwaffle to that person to their face, then you're the problem. Now, I'm not saying you can't shit on a bad excuse. I'm not saying you can't shit on a temper tantrum. If somebody is is trying, if you're trying to have a discussion with somebody and they're just digging in their heels and behaving with all the dignity of a first grader that didn't get a nap today, fuck them. But we have to, as a culture, break ourselves of the the Twitter format. Because if you actually do bother to look at the way everything's gone in the last 15 years, and I know that's hard with link rot on the internet these days, but if we go back through the full 15 years, or we go look at points of contention before the era of Twitter and see how they played out, they were much more nuanced much more diverse, much more elaborate and complex. People understood not everything had a single scapegoat or a single cause. I saw somebody online this morning try to blame housing price spikes on Joe Biden exclusively like he had any control over it directly. It's, it's not Biden. Excuse me, it's not Congress. It's house flippers. And banks and home builders all trying to squeeze every last fucking bit of profit they can out of a property but understand this house flipping has been going on as a business it went on during the clinton administration it went on during the bush administration it went on during the obama administration it went on during the trump administration companies whose sole purpose was to go in spend money to refurbish a house and then charge a markup on it so they could make a profit on top of their costs. But that happened over and over and over so many times and it became such a copycat business. And when the demand for building materials went up because this became an oversaturated business, everybody's costs went up. 
So everybody down the line had to start charging more on down the line to the next person down the line. No political party did that. And if you think the political parties are separate, I, again, Middle Earth Bridge Ring, I got you. I'll, I'll sell you a train ticket to Mordor if you're that fucking into it. It's a great turnkey opportunity, let me tell you. What I'm saying is that the only way we're going to make any kind of meaningful progress in any of the geopolitical and sociopolitical and socioeconomic issues that plague us today is we gotta put down the goddamn phone, kids. We have to stop being on social media. It's time to see through the damn con. If you catch yourself wanting to give in to that, put the phone down, walk away. If you catch yourself wanting to attack a dumb opinion online, put it down and walk away. If you want to address a misinformed position in person, be prepared and you can go for it. Just know some people are so entrenched in that online behavior that they might want to punch you in the face or worse. But as long as we are continuing to feed into the pattern of behavior that Twitter and its derivatives have created of stripping context, stripping subtext, and stripping nuance out of things to the point where people can project their own onto a concept or a topic or an orphan slogan, we're never going to make any fucking progress. We're never actually going to be able to address any of the things that plague our society today and are causing the erosion that we all see but none of us can agree on what caused it or how to solve it i'm guilty of giving in from time to time and just getting all full jim Cornette on somebody on social media that's why i put it down for three years But as long as we continue to enable, as long as we continue to enable that kind of behavior and conditioning to control our thought process and control how we respond to things around us, it's only going to get worse. So let's all take some time and put the phone down once in a while. Let's take the time to actually have a difficult discussion with somebody we disagree with in person. Let's try to develop a little patience. And good Lord, it's a fucking chore. But the only reason I've made any progress at all at bridging gaps between one tribe or the other, and myself, who generally tends to stand on the outside and shit on both of them, because you behave the fucking same, is by engaging people, not avatars, people. 
and seeing them as people and treating them as people. And yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's a chore. Yes, it's fucking tedious sometimes. And yes, you got to sit there and hear shit that gets under your skin in a way that you didn't think was possible. But guess what? Anything that's truly worth having doesn't come easy. And real progress toward reaching real solutions? That's going to involve all of us having to sit through a lot of fucking discomfort and understanding that life doesn't always have a block button. And then sometimes instead of just retreating into our chamber that feeds us a constant stream of validation and all the orphan slogans we want to hear, kind of sounds like a religion if you think about it, maybe we should soldier through our discomfort. And you never know. Maybe the person that we see as being the other might want a lot of the same things we do. And a wedge is just being driven by, between us by the same fucking billionaire laughing at us both while he rides his private jet to fucking Switzerland to figure out a way to raw dog us harder. Keep that in mind. So as you can see, that was that was the wrap of the, the, the excerpt that I wanted to share with you from last week. It's It's one of those things I don't think we think about enough because we don't let shit breathe, because social media is structured. So we can't let things breathe. People aren't given enough space to sit in a feeling anymore, to process a feeling anymore. And because of that conditioning, we've hit a point where we just want to react and spit our opinion and have that opinion validated even if we're spitting it at a time or in a moment or in response to something where if we did that in person, somebody would snatch us up by the arm or by the ear and rightly throw us out of the damn room for being callous, being insensitive, for not letting it breathe. One of the finest examples of that is when somebody dies. And coming up, I want to talk about three people that had a very profound impact on things I love. And in the case of one of them, the phenomenon you just heard me talk about and it's inclination to make people want to react to things without letting them breathe really got under my skin and became a display of sheer classlessness by a certain segment of the internet population. I hope you're not full yet. 
Because there's plenty more I'm going to feed your ears. Stay with us. SMPH. Still brilliant. Still stupid. Presented by Spotify for podcasters. I told you there'd be steak. S-M-P-H, still brilliant, still stupid. Presented by Spotify for podcasters, Amy Joe Cook, back with you. I hope I haven't filled you up too much today, because we've still got a lot to go. It's been uh, quite a lengthy episode. But as I spoke on before the break, and also as I spoke on in the excerpt in the previous segment, social media has developed this really terrible tendency to affect the way and the speed with which we react to things. And I'm going to really hit on that in depth here in a minute. But as I mentioned before the break, I wanted to take this time to talk a little bit about three people we lost last week that had some kind of impact or another in the things I love in my life. Of course, we're going to talk about the most prominent one of them all. If you know me, you know my entire life, I have absolutely loved game shows. Since before I could even, before I was even elementary at like age, I loved game shows. And Mark Goodson, Bill Todman Productions, later Mark Goodson when uh, Todd Goodman bought out, or Bill Todman bought, like, sold his stake in the company to Mark Goodson on the full, were kind of the gold standard in producing game shows. For most of the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, a few of their productions still exist to this day uh, under the Fremantle banner. Because after Mark Goodson died, his son sold everything to Pearson, who was then bought by Fremantle. We're not going to get into that right now. But the last of the old guard bowed out for the final time this past weekend. He was the last one standing. And honestly, as history has played out, might have been the most prominent of all the Goodson Todman All-Stars. This past weekend, Bob Barker passed away at the age of 99. And 
I, I, I don't, I don't know what I can say that hasn't already been said. Bob was the gold standard. If you were born after 1975, there was never a point in your life where Bob Barker wasn't a from 75, technically from 72 to 07. There was never a point in your life where Bob Barker couldn't be seen on your CBS affiliate at 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central, 10 a.m. Mountain. You, you get the deal. I'm not here to explain to you how time zones work. But Bob was the last of the Goodson Todman All-Stars to go. And that's a long damn list, if we really want to run through it. Alan Ludden, Bill Cullen, Jim Perry, Tom Kennedy, Jack Nars, Gene Wood, Johnny Olson, Rod Roddy, Burt Convey, Alex Trebek. That's a damn long list. Those were the venerable greats that dominated the game show business and made it what it was in the era where those were the most prominent under the Goodson Todman banner. And it was Bob's show, The Price is Right, that outlasted them all. Oh shit, I forgot Richard Dawson too. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Richard Dawson. Bob took over and became the host of The Price is Right, the new Price is Right, as it was originally titled in 1972, because when they reformatted the show for the 1972 release, which was originally only a half hour, it didn't expand to a full hour show until 1975. In 1972... They were, they were getting ready to launch a new Price is Right. So they're talking about this 1970, 1971. The original host of the show was Bill Cullen. But with the format change of adding the pricing games, instead of just having the, the, the one-bid round, the contestants row round, that's when they added the pricing games. Bill Cullen had polio as a child. And the television industry went to painstaking lengths to conceal that as much as they could for the purposes of preserving his dignity. Which is fine. It's great. It's wonderful. I, I think it was a very classy move on their part to do that. But when it came time to produce this new version of Price is Right with the format change that we all now know today... Bill obviously couldn't do it. It involved a lot of walking around a, a significantly larger stage. There was no way Bill was going to be able to make that doable on a taping schedule. So what he did instead was he recommended to them amateur golfer 
and game show host of an earlier show, Truth or Consequences, Bob Barker. Bob had a natural, slightly acerbic wit, and because he was an amateur golfer, he was used to doing all of the walking necessary for the show's format and for the show's production style. And when the new Price is Right landed in 1972, it wasn't instantly a smash hit, but it definitely picked up steam quickly. It was a big, vibrant, colorful set. It's kind of funny going back. You watch the original version of the show. That I don't know if you heard me mention the uh, in the previous segment... When it, when it comes to matters of taste, the customer is always right. And I mentioned orange, brown, yellow, all that shit. The original set colors were yellow, orange, and brown. It looked like Ray Kroc designed this fucking thing, and he was going to sell you some cheeseburgers in it. Obviously, over the years, they contemporized the colors and made the show more vivid. Color TV was still a new thing. Blues and greens didn't really, in that time, translate as well on color so they did a lot of yellow brown orange red just because that those showed up better it i don't know why the fuck i'm wandering off the point but bob's personality is what carried that show because bob could be funny bob could be off the cuff bob could react to the personalities of the contestants as they were appearing on screen. Whatever you gave him, he could go somewhere with. And then when they modified the format in 1975, made the set more colorful, expanded to an hour, introduced the big wheel, which the original version is very, very different from the big wheel we now know, the show picked up steam. And other networks who had other shows also produced by Goodman Todman started to kind of have the sense to schedule their shit in places where the price is right wasn't because they knew they were not going to compete with the price is right and the presence it had established. And then, of course, those kids that grew up in the 70s and those kids like me who grew up in the 80s and 90s, we watched it with our parents. We watched it with our grandparents. We watched it every summer vacation day there was. And at that point, it wasn't just the show that was an institution, but Bob himself became an institution unto the landscape of television. And as other daytime game shows kind of died off around him, and Alex Trebek and Pat Sajak slash Vanna White were kind of carving out their own space in that pre-prime time 7 to 8 or 6 to 7, depending on your time zone, local slot... Bob became sort of a, a man on an island. 
there weren't really any uh, by uh, by 92 93 around that era there kind of stopped being game shows around him as the genre sort of fell off because we had gotten to the point where economic circumstances required both people in a couple to work so there weren't as many stay-at-home moms there weren't as many grandma and grandpa, grandmas and grandpas. By the early 90s, you start to see a shift in the audience that's on the show. Because some of the people that originally grew up watching it with their grandparents were becoming adults themselves. They were becoming college age. They could be on the show. And that gave rise to the Barker Bro. I fuck. I know some of you know what I'm talking about. The Barker bro. The too full of energy might be a little on cocaine. Young, energetic, 20-year-old who grew up watching the show with their grandparents, with their parents, who went up there, and to them, Bob was like a cool-ass grandpa. So they were hyped to be on the show, and it's like, yeah, it's fucking Grandpa Bob. Grandpa Bob hooked me up with a car. Hell yeah, bro. And then you got back home and you realized you couldn't afford the taxes on the car. And it's like, oh, that sucks. Still, though, I got to meet Grandpa Bob. That was cool, right? And, of course, we all know about Bob's prominent role in um, Happy Gilmore. I'm not going to go into de de detail on it. I think you've had just about enough, son. That's how you do an homage, motherfuckers. <laughs> But Bob was getting on in years. Obviously, it was getting to the point where he was having trouble going around the set. He was also mired in a little controversy because he had allegedly engaged in some impropriety around how he addressed the beauties, and that's why we started to see turnover there. So uh, in 2007, he finally retired from the program. And he would still make occasional appearances, as Drew Carey was the host. They would do tributes to Bob. He once appeared on an episode of Monday Night Raw. And they, they straight up did, like, oh my god. As much as I despise Chris Jericho now because he's become a two-third scale Hulk Hogan. Heel 2009 Jericho with Bob Barker. And them doing a dead perfect reproduction of the one bid round was absolutely tremendous. It was about one of the only bright spots in that era of Monday Night Raw, which also featured, there was another episode that featured the late Paul Rubens, who we paid tribute to a few weeks ago. But Jericho and Bob, who that one... That was kind of special, and I'm glad that they did that, and they got to pay that respect to him. But, you know, it's one of those things, when somebody like Bob goes, yeah, we're all kind of bummed. But, I mean, it's like when Betty White died. Also, 99. Although, for those of you making the closest to a dollar joke without going over, Betty won. She was only like 18, 19 days off of 100. Bob's like three and a half months out. So Betty won. I'm sure they're all having a laugh about it. 
at what is probably the most epic version of match game in the afterlife you could conceive. Because all the names I listed, plus all of the match game stars that have, you know, long since gone. Oh, I bet the ghost of Gene Rayburn is just yucking it up up there. In fact, in a, a little side note. The reason, and I don't know if you all know this, the reason Bob stopped dyeing his hair in 1987 and just started coming out with his hair being its natural white at that point was because a tabloid reporter had revealed Gene Rayburn's age and revealed that Gene was 57. And we think about 57 now and we look at some of the people in television and film and even wrestling 57's not old by today's standards. 35 years ago, that was way past over the hill. Nowadays, we say 57, you're like, shit, you got a good 15 more in you at least. But Gene Rayburn was 57 at the time. He was outed by a tabloid reporter and never got work again. And in a show of solidarity and a sort of fuck you to the ageism that everybody experienced in Bob or in Hollywood, Bob stopped dyeing his hair. He's like, yeah, I'm in my 50s. I'm flirting with 60. My hair's white. I have the highest rated game show that's ever existed. What the fuck are you going to do about it? It was, it was a sort of a fuck you to that, that attitude, that culture. But while I am a little bummed, and I, I mean, I was like, oh, when, when Bob went, and obviously Bob played a huge part in a lot of our childhoods, you can't be too broken up about somebody dying at the age of 99, because how much more life can you live? But he was the gold standard in game show hosting. Because literally only two other people had the longevity that he did. Trebek and Sajak. Trebek left us in 2020 after a battle with pancreatic cancer. And Sajak's going to be with us for about another year before he hangs it up and Ryan Seacrest takes over. But Bob Barker everybody's cool uncle everybody's cool grandpa thank you for making 11 a.m eastern a better time for everybody we will miss you we'll see you at the next showcase bub the other two that i wanted to address have to do with the world of professional wrestling. As I mentioned, Bob Bob did that appearance on Monday Night Raw in an era where the show was kind of a pile of hot dog shit, but his segment stood out. But last week, we also lost two people in that wrestling family. One at the age of 79... And it was a very, it was a very hard lived 79. It was a 79 
with more miles on it than most people have probably ever put on their body or could put on their body in two lifetimes. And that was Terry Funk. Son of Dory Funk Sr., brother of Dory Funk Jr., known all the world over as a hardcore legend. I'm going to keep it brief with Terry because what can I say that hasn't already been said? Terry was and might have been kind of low-key the greatest all-around professional wrestler of all time. Not because of the number of titles he won, because we're not we're not looking at it from a Mark's perspective, but there were very few other people who were at or near the top from the very get-go in any territory they visited, in any company they worked for, and on any continent they worked. Because you got to understand, Terry came through the territory era. He was dominant in Texas. He was dominant in the, in the Southeast. He was dominant in Japan. In Japan, they worshipped him like one tier below Inoki. If that gives you any idea of how beloved he was there. And whether and and this is in and we're talking they they learned to love Terry Funk in an era when Terry was still a pure worker before age and the diminishing number of opportunities to be visible compelled him to have to change his style into something that we later knew in my generation and those younger than us know as the hardcore legend. I can't really. I can't really add too much to the conversation. I would say if you want... This is also because I want to... Re- the, the show's running damn long today, and I also want to reserve some space for the, ne- the next one, because that's where the, the meat of the... That's where the stake on this topic is coming. If you can, go look for Jim Cornette's YouTube page because on the YouTube page they actually break up his podcast into segments so you can find things devoted to specific topics Jim spent about an hour and a half around at least an hour and a half paying tribute to Terry Funk because Terry had a more immediate and direct and personal impact in Jim's life plus love him or hate Jim Cornette when it comes to paying respects to people who've passed on, Jim's fucking class. He is. He truly is. He knows when to to to, to kind of let the let the gimmick die a little bit, like let the gimmick simmer down a little bit, and actually talk real stuff. If you when you get the time, go listen to Jim Cornette's piece on the passing of Terry Funk. Because I can't do justice to the value and the worth and the impact that Terry Funk made on the business at large the way Jim does in that piece when he's talking to Brian Last. There's where you go. If you want to know Terry Funk, 
and you want to know Terry Funk from the inside, go find Jim's podcast on YouTube. Go find the Jim Cornette official YouTube page. Go listen to it there. Because I'm not going to plagiarize Jim, but I also can't touch the, the, the quality of the tribute and the respect and everything that Jim put into paying tribute to Terry Funk. Now the last one. And this is the one that is particularly tragic. Not two days after we all kind of come to the realization that we've lost Terry Funk, we all get hit by a freight train out of nowhere that Bray Wyatt, real name Wyndham Rotunda, died suddenly of a heart attack at the age of 36. And this one's kind of an Owen Hart level of tragic. Because it's too goddamn soon. It was entirely too soon. And you can say what you want about his gimmicks and some of the creative direction he went in recent memory. But... He died of a heart attack at his home after several months of complications with COVID, per what the reports say. It was sudden, it was abrupt, and I'm sure to a lot of people it felt the way I felt when Owen Hart died back in 1999. Or the way people felt when Eddie Guerrero died in 2005. It was sudden. It was tragic. It was smack in the middle of what is supposed to be the prime of your wrestling career. Wrestlers peak in their mid to late 30s. And my heart hurts for his family. My heart hurts for his wife and his kids. Because by all accounts... Bray was about Wyndham. I'm gonna we're gonna drop the Bray Wyatt bit. Wyndham Rotunda was one of the most genuinely kind humans you could have known. And again, I can't do him and Wyndham as the person justice. Plenty of others have done that before me. In fact, a little bit of backstory. The reason his name is Wyndham Rotunda, if you've heard the name Rotunda, you know who his father is. His father is Mike Rotunda. He was an amateur wrestler at Syracuse. He was in the professional wrestling business for a very long time. You either knew him as Mike Rotundo or Michael Wall Street, or if you watched WWF, you knew him as Erwin R. Scheister. His tag team partner for a lot of that time was Barry Windham, son of the famous legendary Blackjack Mulligan, real name Robert Windham. 
so Wyndham Rotunda was named after his mom's side of the family as a show of respect. And when you saw him work, you could see the condensation of being the product of two complete families of professional wrestling competence boiled down and condensed into a single person. And yes, maybe some of his gimmick ideas later on were, were, were misguided. Weren't always going to land, but you can't dispute the fact that he wasn't afraid to take risks. And he wasn't afraid to put himself out there and take a chance that something might fail And that's a testament to who he was as a person creatively. Because he was always willing to take the risks. And he had all of that good material from all of his forebears to learn from. When you grow up in the business, like a Randy Orton, like a Wyndham Rotunda, like a Cody Rhodes... You see things in a way that no other fan ever can. That shit is burned onto you from childhood. It's probably one of the reasons Dominic Mysterio is thriving the way he is right now. But to see him go so soon is... Truly sad. But what I find even more sad is that in less than 24 hours after the news broke, I told you, I told you we'd come back around to my, my gripe about social media and its inability to let things breathe. That's my main point here. People were immediately hopping on every social media platform they could to spread COVID vaccine propaganda and conspiracy theories. And as I mentioned in the previous segment, you can totally have misgivings about the political aggression attached to this one particular vaccine, sure. But God damn it, he didn't even have 24 hours You couldn't let that shit breathe and just keep your opinion to yourself for a week or two? You're allowed to have the opinion. But goddamn, let the shit breathe and let the people close to him grieve and mourn and feel what they need to feel. And then if you want to talk shit, talk shit. But good lord. Less than 24, in some cases, less than 12 hours later. Well, I guess he shouldn't have got the jabby jab. It's like, well, jerk off, you sounds like you need a two-piece right in the fucking chin. You classless piece of trash. Fuck is wrong with you. I'm not saying you can't have an opinion. I'm not saying... You can't express your opinion. But goddamn, out of respect for everybody around him, fucking sit on it for a few days at least. 
And don't run to the places where you know an audience like that is going to be expressing their feelings and expressing their thoughts and expressing their grief. Don't go there and jizz your goddamn vanity all over everything there while people are struggling to deal with their emotions. If you want to have a soapbox and you want to have a crusade, that's cool. I won't begrudge that. We've already established that. Both in premise or your right to say it. But goddamn, have some fucking class. Let it breathe. Let people grieve. Let people mourn. Again, modern social media has created this manufactured sense of urgency where people are so hell-bent on needing to get their hot take out as fast as possible that we wind up with things like this where people have become so damn callous and so damn sensitive about it that we just, we just can't... We, why can't we let that breathe why can't we let people have those feelings and then once you see like that that's like going to someone's funeral and tipping the fucking casket over it's on a more personal level on a more local level the friend i was hanging out with this weekend for my birthday she found out on sunday that someone close to her from her past had taken his own life. And of course, she's devastated as she finds out about this. And she's trying to grieve. But again, that lovely little toxic box in our pockets became a forum for everybody who didn't like this individual to go ahead and say it right the fuck away. And yes, a lot of people saw this person as a good person. Maybe they didn't see where this person fell on hard times later down the line. And did some things that uh, we would find unacceptable. Maybe at this person's later stages in life, the circumstances of their life did cause them to become unpleasant. And did not treat people well while they were dealing with their own stuff. So it's understandable that people may have a negative opinion of this individual. But whether it's on a national level, like Wyndham Rotunda, or on a local level, or on a personal level, like my friend losing someone who was close to her, stop racing to the fucking box in your pocket to have a hot take Before people have had a chance to properly grieve. It's classless. It's rude. It's callous as shit. There's a lot of people in this world didn't think highly of my mother. But at least they had the decency to wait a couple weeks before they said something. I don't begrudge them their opinion of my mother. Probably agree with some of it.
But let it fucking breathe, man. Let people have the space to feel what they feel and share what they want to share. And let them mourn before you come taking a hot steamer on everyone's grief or sorrow or loss. That's not an unreasonable expectation. That's not asking too much. You can have your opinion. Just sit on it for a little bit, would you? As I've said, we've dealt in so much stake this week that uh, even my brain's getting a little bloated. So I'm skipping the shopping segment this week. Next week, I'll be happy to talk to you about what I promised two weeks ago. And how, if you're not a gamer, but you need the most screen real estate possible for your computer, you should probably be poking around the TV department and not the computer department. We'll cover that on next week's program. I promise. I will be back next week. Back to the regular schedule. But of course, it wouldn't be SMPH if I didn't focus and end every episode on a slightly up note by telling you something I love about the place I call home. A gem of the gem city. And the one I had originally planned for two weeks ago, I will push back to next week. Because this week, the gem of the gem city is a place that I think more people need to spend their time when they want to feed their brain. And it's a place that we all kind of have taken a... a, a, a basically, it's kind of left our, our main field of view. But when I come back, this week's Gem of the Gem City is the Dayton Metro Library. Because I got to tell you, you probably haven't been in a long time. But this is not the library you remember. It's a hell of a lot better. Stick around. We're going to wrap this up. SMPH, still brilliant, still stupid. Presented by Spotify for podcasters. Homestretch coming right after this. S-M-P-H, still brilliant, still stupid, presented by Spotify for podcasters. Spotify for podcasters is a great service where you can have all the tools you need to start, distribute, and monetize your own podcast. Visit podcasters.spotify.com today 
and start your own podcast. I am so glad after such a long episode, I did not screw that one up like I did in segment two. Holy shit. Oh, it's been an exhausting one today. And I want to thank every one of you for coming back. I want to thank every one of you for sticking with me. After I took a little two-week break to figure myself out, figure things out. And through this absolutely packed episode of really heavy stuff that I wanted to deal with today. Because it's running long, and because I am a little bit behind deadline, this week's Gem of the Gem City is going to be a little more concise than it normally is. This week, I want to tell you about a gem of the gem city that has been a gem of the gem city for over a century. Their main branch is on its third building. It is an absolute sight to behold. And whether you go to the main branch downtown or you go to any of the other new branches that they have spent the last, gosh, 10 plus years slowly phasing in and restoring the Dayton Metro Library is by far one of my most favorite and most cherished institutions in all of Dayton. And as our culture has changed and as our the manner by which we consume media and the manner by which we consume content has changed, it's not always easy for things like a library to catch up or to keep up even. But I have to acknowledge the Dayton Metro Library has done an absolutely tremendous job over the last 10 plus years in modernizing itself and showing everyone what a library system can still be. And I'm not just talking about the physical books on the shelves. Whether you go to any of their branch locations, which have all had their buildings replaced or restored, and our wonderful modern facilities, always full of fresh content. I'm going to talk about the main branch. It's going to be my focus on this one. I live just a, a, a very short drive uh, from the heart of downtown. And if you want to see a library, this is the one to check out. The new branch, or the main branch rather, reopened in 2017 after an extensive renovation and modernization and I'm pretty partial to it because not only do they keep the content up to date, not only have they modernized the look and feel of the place to make it more comfortable, more inviting, they've added their own coffee shop that actually does a fine job and we'll talk about them another time. But it's also the place where you go if you want the really meatiest part 
of what the Dayton Metro Library System has to offer. And that's up on the second floor. Because not only do you have your standard fare of fiction and non-fiction, but the entire Dayton History section is on the second floor. The Dayton History Room is on the second floor. A whole library, a whole trove of microfilm, microfiche, government journals, family histories. It's all there. You know, the stuff that makes a, a physical library great. But what, what I think people sleep on in this modern age where everybody gets a lot of their media electronically is the fact that Dayton Metro Library has kept up with this by partnering with Overdrive Inc. so that you can sign in with your existing library card or you can get a digital library card and use the app Libby to access hundreds of thousands of books in the Dayton Metro Library system. You can use your library card to log into Press Reader and get access to newspapers and periodicals from not just here, because you can get the Dayton Daily News there, but from all over the United States and all over the world. Shit, if you can read Japanese, you can get the Omiyori Shimbun through Press Reader with your library card. You can use Hoopla to access tons of audiobooks and video content and movies even. And I won't say it's free. You pay for it with your tax dollars, of course. But whether you're the kind of person who likes to physically go to the library or you're a person who prefers to consume your media in a digital form, Dayton Metro Library has done a tremendous job of providing you a glut of resources to access that from wherever you are. So, if you get a chance, and as soon as you can, download the Libby app from your phone's app store or from your tablet's app store or visit DaytonMetroLibrary.org Sign in with your existing library card. Get a virtual library card. Take advantage of all of the work that this library system has done to keep you enriched with a world of good, good material from every source you can think of. And it's available on every source you can think of. Go visit DaytonMetroLibrary.org today. Go visit the main branch on East 3rd Street at the corner or at the, the block of East 3rd, East 2nd, uh, St. Clair and Patterson. It's, it's the whole block with Cooper Park. They're open Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, 8.30 to 8. Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, 8.30 to 5.30. Go visit them. You will not be disappointed. But I said I would keep this one short. Because I'm sure you're exhausted. I know I'm exhausted. You can tell my voice is exhausted. It's been a long one. Thank you. 
seriously, thank you for being a part of this program. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being there. Even as I had to work a little me shit out. I appreciate those of you who do listen. I appreciate those of you who do respond. It means everything to me. As a kid who grew up just wanting to do radio, you're why I continue to do this at all, even if it's only a few of you. But if you like what you hear on this show, email us, feedmyears at outlook.com. Leave a voicemail at the SMPH inbox, 937 226 9767. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts. Listen to us on Google Podcasts. Listen to us on iHeartRadio. Listen to us on Amazon Music. Listen to us on Spotify. Share it. Spread it around. Tell your friends. Because I can't keep doing this without you. And know that I appreciate you. From the bottom of my heart, know that I appreciate you. No music closed this week. But I will tell you as always, SMPH, still brilliant, still stupid, has been a CGF production. CGF Productions is the place where great ideas come to get fed. SMPH is presented by Spotify for Podcasters. Visit podcasters.spotify.com and get all the tools you need to start your own podcast today. And until next week, when we will be back to the original format, I will be back to something closer to the traditional hour, 15-minute runtime. Until that time, tell the people you love that you love them. Do your best to not take them for granted. Stay hungry. Stay healthy. And I look forward to talking to you next Tuesday. Good night, Mom.